0: Let's come before God in prayer. Our Father, as we look at your word today, we confess that these things are too wonderful for us. We can't comprehend the depth of your love for us. Lord, I cannot express the wonder of your gospel well enough. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us now. Help us as we listen to the gospel, as we meditate on it. Help us to be those who see your love for us and believe it. We ask that your word would be our guide, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, do grab your Bibles. You'll need them. We're in Luke 23. I'll read that in just a moment. Now, famously, the the first acts of U.S. presidents are significant. The newspapers tend to tell us after 100 days what has this particular president done to see what impact they've had. Their first acts tell us what the rest of their leadership is going to be like. And so as the US presidential elections are coming up this year, all the world is watching. Whether it will be Donald Trump or Joe Biden or hopefully someone else entirely, how they lead matters if you're under their authority. So if you're a Chinese tech giant doing business in America and Biden's first act is to raise corporation tax, you know you're in for a bad couple of years. On the other hand, if you're an underpaid employee and the new president raises the living wage, then it looks like the next four years will look better. Now the point is that the first acts of a ruler tell you what the rest of their leadership Will be like, And today in Luke 23, we're going to be seeing the first acts of Jesus Christ as he comes into his kingdom. The ruler of the kingdom of God. So open up your Bibles, have a look at Luke 22 verse 69. Jesus there announces that from this moment on, he is beginning to rule as God's promised Messiah King. So what we're about to see is Jesus' first formal acts as King. What is going to be the defining act of the king of the universe? What does it mean for those of us who are under his rule? This matters. What kind of king will he be? Now even though Jesus is meant to be the one in trial in this scene, what we're going to find out is the real defendants in a hopeless case are those who oppose him. So do grab your Bibles. We're going to look at Luke 23, starting from verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing deserving of death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demands. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As we study through this passage, we're going to look at it in two sections. Our first section, verses 1 to 12, we're going to be looking at the different ways that Pilate and Herod oppose Jesus as king. As we look at that, God is giving us a warning. He's holding up a mirror to our faces, saying, are you so different to them? And then in our second section, verse 13 to 25, we're going to look at Jesus' first official act as king. So let's dig in. Heading 1, opposition Opposed, sorry, opposition exposed, rather, verses 1 to 12. Feeble Pilate, Jesus is innocent but inconvenient. Jesus is innocent but inconvenient. Now, this is not the first time that we've encountered Pilate in Luke's gospel. In chapter 3, verse 1, Luke tells us, just as he's setting the scene for Jesus Christ to be born, he tells us that Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was the representative, the representative of Caesar in that region. He was Caesar's eyes and ears and sword. And in chapter 13, we read about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It seems that there had been some people from Galilee, Galilean pilgrims, going up to the temple to sacrifice. And as they went, they displeased Pilate somehow. And so as they were sacrificing, he killed them. Pilate is a man with the authority of Caesar and the power to do whatever he wants, whenever and wherever he wants to do it. And so now in our passage today, the Jewish leaders who so hate Jesus, they drag him off to the most powerful man they can find, to Pilate. And you see, they have essentially one accusation. Have a look at verse 2. This man is subverting our nation. The charge against Jesus, he's an extremist, an insurrectionist, a, a terrorist. That's not the Jesus that we've read about in, our, in, in the gospel, is it? But they've been twisting the truth. So they've got two pieces of evidence to prove their charge, and both of them are half-truths. The first piece of evidence, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Now this is almost true, isn't it? In chapter 20, we read about someone asked Jesus, Jesus If we're in your kingdom, surely we don't have to give taxes to Caesar. Jesus doesn't give a straight answer. He says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. The second piece of evidence, he claims to be Messiah, and they translate this for the Gentile Pilate, a king. Now this is entirely true, but they're saying it in such a way that it threatens Caesar. Pilate might think, what if this so-called king is, going, is vying for Caesar's throne? So Pilate gets the point, and he sees the big issue here. Is this man a threat to Caesar? So have, have a look at verse 3. Pilate asks the question that matters. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies with four words in English, with two words in Greek. You have said so. Literally, you say This is this way of saying, yes, but you're saying it, not me. And we read in John 18 that Pilate and Jesus have a private conversation um, about what his kingdom looks like. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a threat to Caesar. But I am the king of the Jews. And so Pilate is satisfied. Look at verse 4. I find no basis for a charge against this man. The judge has spoken The gavel has come down, it's done. And so far, we like Pilate, don't we? Sure, he's a bit overbearing, and he's a bit of a violent ruler. But at the end of the day, he's just. He's fair. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 5 and 6. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. What do we make of Pilate now? He has proclaimed very forthrightly, Jesus is innocent. And yet one little complaint from a band of people who obviously hate Jesus, and he finds any excuse he can to send Jesus away. He's dodging the issue. Jesus is innocent, but he's inconvenient. Now, before we look down at Herod, just skip ahead to verse 13 to 16. Because here, Pilate again announces that Jesus is innocent. But when the crowd protests louder and louder, Pilate doesn't stand strong, knowing he's got the full might of Caesar behind him. Pilate just starts to give in. He protests, no, he's innocent, no, he's innocent, no, he's innocent, three times in this passage. But in the end, look at verse 23, their shouts prevailed, so Pilate decided to grant their demands. He releases an evil man and takes an innocent man in to be crucified. When we read this story, we might know this story pretty well, this account of what happened many years ago, and we kind of glosses over us. But think of it, think of a famous killer Someone who, who committed treason and killed people in the process. I think of a judge saying, don't worry about it, off you go. I'm going to take that rando off the street and they're going to prison for life. It's massively unjust. Pilate is not a good man. He sees Jesus clearly as innocent, but he's such a con- an inconvenience to him that he'll crucify him. You can summarize it like this, Pilate fears man more than he fears God. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, does this fit you at all? Maybe you're convinced that Jesus really was innocent. He's a good man, nice teacher. But maybe like Pilate, you think Jesus is a little too inconvenient. Because let's be honest, being a Christian sounds pretty restrictive. And it is, really. If, if you submit yourself to Jesus' authority, you cannot do whatever you want. We have to, he does not give us free reign to do our selfish desires. I don't know what they are for you, those desires. Maybe it's, it's all about your money. This is what feels too restrictive. Maybe following Jesus would mean that you have to spend your money or treat your career in a way that is totally, radically different to how you're treating it now. And that's just too much. Maybe it's not money, maybe it's family. There are brothers and sisters in our church family here who because they have decided to follow King Jesus, their family has rejected them. At the very least, they've been pushed away. At the very worst, they've been hated. Cut off entirely. That's a real cost. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's sex. That's one of the big things in our culture today. Maybe you know that if you follow Jesus, you'd really have to stop doing that stuff you do on a Friday night. You'd really have to stop doing that stuff you do in your bedroom when no one's there. That's just too inconvenient. Jesus isn't really worth that. Now, if that's you, you kind of feel that tension within you, the good news is that God has described your situation in the Bible. Later on, read, yourself, read for yourself Jeremiah chapter 2. God describes what that way of living is like. He says that is like drinking water out of broken, what, broken wells, pardon me, which are contaminated with filthy water. So the question for you is, does living the way that you are now living, does that satisfy you? Christians, the same question to you. When we sin, does that sin satisfy you? It doesn't. Because while it may seem that following Jesus is inconvenient, he is the only source of clean, wonderful water in this whole world. So that is feeble Pilate, a man for whom Jesus is innocent but inconvenient. Now let's look down at verse 8. We're looking at fickle Herod. Jesus is interesting but inadequate. Now before we we actually look at the passage, let's think of a little context. Who is this Herod? Who is this man? Well, we've met him a couple of times. We met him in chapter 3 when uh, he had a very interesting encounter with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this preacher man, he came to him and he said, Herod, you must stop sleeping with your brother's wife. He doesn't much like that. Herod is a man who lives for pleasure. In the other Gospels, we hear about Herod's parties, lavish parties. They drink and get drunk. They eat way past the point of being full. They do all kinds of other things. At one, at one point, Herod's stepda- uh, stepdaughter dances for him, and it pleases him. Let the, daughter understand, uh, let the reader understand, rather. We then hear in chapter 9 that he beheaded John the Baptist. Then in chapter 13, Jesus is warned that Herod is after him. So what do we expect as Jesus is sent to meet Herod? We expect to meet a vicious, hedonistic Herod. He wants pleasure. And if he can't have pleasure, he is vicious. So let's read verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time, he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Herod's looking for entertainment. He's interested in Jesus. And then in verse 9, he plies Jesus with questions. He really wants to get to know him. He wants to see the show, and he wants to hear the great preacher perform for him. What does Jesus do? Verse 9, Herod asks many questions. Jesus gives no answer. Why? Well, we've already read why in Isaiah 53. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53 says this, He, Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is standing there, silent because he knows what he's doing he is keeping the the, the promise of this prophecy from long ago so let's just be really clear Jesus is no victim of history you have no right to pity him he said to his father not my will but your will be done father he's obeying his father's will bravely because he wants to save sinners So, keep reading. Look at verse 10. All the while, the chief priests and the scribes have been standing by, shouting abuse, accusing Jesus. And so Herod, even Herod himself and his soldiers, Herod gets off his throne and starts mocking Jesus. He and his soldiers dress him up as like a fake little king and they laugh at him. Because to Herod, Jesus is interesting but he's inadequate. He's not What he wanted. Jesus did not put on the show for Herod like he wanted. Now Herod had heard all about Jesus and he couldn't wait to see him. But what he wanted was an entertainer who would bow down to him. And who would do exactly like he asked. But what he found was a Jesus who would not bow down to him. And it infuriated him. My friends, Jesus will not bow down to you. Can you face that? Herod couldn't. When Jesus refused to answer his questions, Herod got down from his throne, he manhandled Jesus, he mocked him, he spat on him and ridiculed him, dressed him up like a king and laughed the whole time. Herod could not take the fact that Jesus will not bow down to anyone. The real Jesus gets on his knees not to bow down to you, but to wash you Because you're filthy with sin. The real Jesus welcomes needy people. They're his best friends that he will converse with for eternity. But he has nothing, not a word to say to people who want him to bow down to him, to them. Those who won't admit their need of him. So Herod, this is a vicious, hedonistic man who couldn't face the fact that Jesus wouldn't bow down to him. And so the end of our section, verse 12, having dismissed Jesus, Herod and Pilate become friends. They hated each other. And yet they both despised Jesus so much more. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed king. So this is our first section. Friends, do you see yourself in either of these two men? If I'm honest with you, I think I do. With Pilate, I often fear people more than I fear God. I know my Lord Jesus, that he died for me, that he loves me, that I'm free, forgiven. And yet how often do I give in to sin because others are doing it too? How often do I disobey Jesus because following him in this area or that area is a bit too inconvenient. How often do you? Sometimes I see Herod in myself. I have all my questions that I need Jesus to answer right now, the way I want him to do it. And when he doesn't, I reject him in my heart because I'm so mad. Jesus, I wanted you to do this for me. These are heinous sins. I don't know exactly what those sins look like in your life. I imagine for most of us they're different. But I know the fact that we have all treated Jesus like Pilate or like Herod did. These are things deserving of hell. It's cosmic rebellion against the king of the universe. And that's the point that Luke wants us to get. We are the guilty ones with Herod, with Pilate. That's our first point to our second point the great exchange this is from verse 13 to the end so Pilate now formally calls together all the people to come and hear the formal judgment and he presents the charge the verdict and the punishment all in one nice and neat for us to see it he says this you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion that's the charge Jesus leads a rebellion I have examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As, as you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. The charge, Jesus leading a rebellion. The verdict, he's innocent. The punishment, I will punish him and then release him. We see here the, even deeper into Pilate's sinfulness, don't we? He said loudly, Jesus is innocent. That doesn't stop him punishing an innocent man. But the big point here is that Jesus is absolutely and obviously innocent. Pilate sees it, and so does Herod. So, as Pilate announces this, the crowd erupts in rage. Look at verse 18. Really simple. You can feel the kind of barbarousness of this. Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Now, notice this. This is important. Barabbas has never, we've never heard of Barabbas before. And we're never going to ever hear about him again. And yet, he comes up in all four gospel accounts. He must be important. But all we know about him is that he was an insurrectionist and he was a murderer. All we know about Barabbas is that he is guilty. And he really, really deserves punishment. That's the one thing we know about him. Do you notice that the things that Jesus is falsely accused of doing? Leading a rebellion. This is exactly the thing that Barabbas has been doing. This is the man that they want to substitute Jesus for. So they scream, release Barabbas. Treat this guilty rebel as though he's innocent, Pilate and crucify Jesus. We come to the end of our passage, look down at verse 22. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime is this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him punished and then release him, but with loud shouts. That phrase, loud shouts, read through all of Luke's gospel. Where does that come out? Who shouts loudly? Demons, only demons. This is dark things happening here. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Luke has included this section with Barabbas because it is a lived parable of what happens on the cross. Our passage ends with Jesus being surrendered to the will of evil men and it seems like the power and the will of darkness and of satan has won jesus is about to be crushed by rome for crimes that he never committed and he has been despised and rejected by all mankind both jew and gentle and to top it all off he's barely even opened his mouth he said only two words he is going to be crucified but not for crimes that he's done in fact, he's not merely being crucified. As Ben showed us earlier on in the passage when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's happening on the cross is not just this awful, disgusting torture of crucifixion, it's all of the wrath of God that we deserve is coming down on the Son of God. We can't even imagine what, that, what that's like. I can't even describe it. Think of hell and then multiply that by a million, and you're somewhere close. It's what he took for us. But Christ is no victim here. Jesus does not go to the cross and endure God's wrath unwillingly or weakly. So why does he go? Well, as I, so I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, where do we see something of this motivation in, in our lives? And I thought of something a bit silly. Um, my wife and I recently watched the first Hunger Games film, To be honest with you, I wasn't very impressed, Uh, but I was struck by a scene fairly early on in the film. In the movie, as punishment for a civil war many years ago, the political elite randomly chooses two teenagers each year from each district to be forced to fight to the death in a kind of arena-style combat. It's brutal and it's terrifying, and the choosing ceremony is called the reaping. And one year, the main character's younger sister, Prim, is chosen. She's 11 years old. She will almost certainly die. So her older sister, Katniss, volunteers to take Prim's place in the Hunger Games. She chooses to face almost certain death so that her sister doesn't have to. She willingly steps forth as her substitute because of her deep love for her. Now, I say it's silly because that is such a tiny, ridiculous illustration. But the reason i say it is that it shows us the motivation why did katniss take the place of her sister just because she loves her sister so much not because her sister was very useful to her because she loves her and the love of one sister for another is nothing compared to the love of the lord jesus christ for you and so as we read i'm going to read isaiah 53 describing what Jesus did for us have in mind his motivation he did these things because he loves us So, but he, from Isaiah 53 he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities The uh, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him on jesus the iniquity of us all now we've seen ourselves maybe dimly reflected in herod and in pilate but the person that luke really wants us to identify with in this passage is barabbas luke wants us he said it from the beginning to have certainty about our salvation because we're all sinners and how often do you feel uncertainty of god's love for you Well, Luke wants us to understand the good news. God punished Jesus in your place so that you will never experience his wrath. We are Barabbas. Christ has freed us. Someone's put it like this. The justice due to Jesus is enjoyed by Barabbas. But the justice due to Barabbas was endured by. By Jesus it's a wonderful exchange and it's just a picture of what Christ has done on the cross for every single sinner who puts their faith in him we're not just hoping that God won't punish us for our sins we know he won't he has punished all of our sins in Jesus on the cross and the great news is that he rose three days later he is living now he's welcoming sinners home now so that we, like Barabbas, if we have faith in Jesus, can be set free. So as we come to an end, we, we, we thought earlier about what the first act of a king tells you about his rule and his kingdom. So what does Jesus' first act as king tell us about his kingdom? Two things it doesn't tell us, or it tells us that he's not like. Jesus isn't a king like Herod, who only cared about what his subjects can give to him. Instead Jesus stoops down and he takes the place of sinful guilty sinners who can do nothing for him and that is the pattern of God's kingdom the king of God's kingdom gives grace to those who don't deserve it and this room is filled with people who don't deserve it and jesus isn't like a king like pilate either he doesn't give up when it gets inconvenient when his people were facing an eternity in hell and the only way for him to save them was to take hell for them, Jesus did not hesitate. He went, eyes wide open, because he loves us. So Christian, this is your king. Don't worry about the application about what we need to do this week. Let's spend time looking at the Lord Jesus. He loves you. He took hell to save you because he loves you. Now if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart at all, I know that there is sin in your life that bothers you. Maybe like me, you struggle to trust that God loves you despite your sin, and you suspect that God is getting fairly close to giving up on you. Surely by this point, you should be doing better. He can put up, you think, with a bit of sin, but yours is too much, and you're taking a really long time to change. If that's how you think, then I've got the joy of telling you that you are totally and wonderfully wrong. When you feel like Barabbas, entirely unlovable, righteously so, you see yourself as you really are, remind yourself of this passage of the cross. It is proof that God loves sinners. I can't remember who, but someone said it like this, if your sins were all written down on a piece of paper, be a big piece of paper, what the Lord Jesus did on the cross is he took them in both hands, scrunched up the piece of paper with your sins on, and he hung there on the tree with his hands holding the sin to the tree. Our sins truly were nailed to the tree when Jesus died. They're no longer your sins. Jesus has taken them. Before God, you are no longer guilty. God looks at us who trust in Jesus and sees nothing but Jesus' innocence, his beauty in us. And so every person in this room who is trusting in the Lord Jesus can sing this song with all honesty. I'm going to read from the song we're about to sing. My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'll pray for us now. Our Father, we thank you so much that you love us like you loved Barabbas. That even though we truly are full of sin... That because you so love us, you bore our sins in your your body on the tree. Pray you would help each of us to meditate on this. Help us to trust what you have revealed to us. Lord, pray that many of us who struggle with that, would your Holy Spirit be constantly bringing your love to our minds. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand to sing? Thank you.